As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Steve, and I am host of the History of the Papacy and Beyond the Big Screen podcasts. In producing these podcasts, I've read a book or two, and I was so much, I had someone to keep me on track and help me read the classics and the important books of literature in a really systematic way. And that is where intellectual linear progression comes in. This is a program where you can join regular people like yourself who work together to curate a love for reading and building knowledge. Intellectual linear progressions not only helps you build an understanding and love of the great books, they also help you develop the close reading skills that will help you get as much as possible out of these texts. I am really excited to be able to bring you a very unique offer. This is an opportunity for personal growth through great literature and to join an incredible community of learners. In their Zoom online classrooms, your learning is led by an Intellectual Linear Progressions host in a Socratic Method seminar with their carefully curated hard copy text delivered right to your home. What I love is that they're not the givers of knowledge. You work together with a team leader and your fellow students to build knowledge and understanding. As a History of the Papacy and Beyond the Big Screen listener, you will receive 25% off your first three months. You can subscribe and receive your 25% off your first three months by going to intellectuallinearprogressions.com and use promo code PAP. You can sign up at their website, intellectuallinearprogression.com forward slash PAP, And use that promo code PAP to get your 25% off your first three months. Go to intellectuallinearprogression.com forward slash PAP to get that great offer of 25% off your first three months. So let's learn together on the history of the papacy, beyond the big screen, and intellectual linear progression. Sidetrack Episode 62, Digging Deeper into Dura Europas.
Thank you for listening to the History of the Papacy, an Agora Podcast Network member. You can always go to agorapodcastnetwork.com to find more great, thought-provoking, and independent podcasts. You can learn more about the history of the papacy at our website, a2zhistorypage.com. I always appreciate your iTunes ratings and reviews. They really help me make this show better and let other people learn about the show as well. I'm going to mention our Agora Podcaster of the Month, Roy Field Brown, of many, many great podcasts. Roy Field has 10 U.S. Presidents, How Jamaica Conquered the World, a podcast about the Archers, which apparently is some sort of British soap opera type show that's on the radio, and that that sounds very popular there, apparently. If you know more about the Archers, uh, email me, because I'd love to know what the deal is with it. Mid-Atlantic, which is a politics show and Friday 15, which is a program where Roy Field discusses music with interesting guests. And there'll probably be more podcasts before this episode's released. So keep your podcatchers updated. To learn more about Roy Field's shows, you can go over to www.royfield.com at agorapodcastnetwork.com or in the show notes. Now, today, I thought we'd be able to visit and view Dura Europa's house church in one episode. That In the last episode, that's what I thought. Well, I was wrong. There's just so much to talk about with this really incredibly important piece of architecture, art, and history. This is the sort of thing I really want wanted to discuss in this podcast. There's so much background, context, and just fun history. I'm really no expert in any of the areas we're going to discuss today. I'm just trying to sort out some complicated scholarship and share what I've been able to glean and summarize from what I've read and researched on the topics I'm fascinated with. If you have other information or other ideas or think I've gotten something completely wrong, email me or otherwise get in contact through social media, etc., and we'll talk about it. I'll likely discuss it in future shows as well. We'll bring that back in. So with that, let's go venture back to the Dura Europas House Church. Figuring out the Dura Europas House Church has been a real challenge for scholars to understand completely for many really important reasons as I see it. Religious iconography can be incredibly difficult to make sense of, particularly when they're only fragments to work with. Another complicating factor is that the art in Dura Europa's church is based on a textual and shared verbal traditions. Not only that, the art was based on texts that were very fluid and were also potentially based on uncanonical or even on texts we don't even possess at this time in history. On top of that, the Dura Europa's church community may have been based on a church tradition that isn't very much understood today, particularly in the West, but let alone a century ago when much of the initial research and analysis on the Dura Europa's Christian building was done. Those are a lot of complicating factors. Making things yet more complicated is that it takes a very specific set of skills and a researcher to figure out all the nuance and textual, artistic, theological, and historical aspects embedded in the iconography and architecture of the church. 
I'm going to use this term iconography rather than art for the most part purposefully because the pictures on the walls of the baptistry and the rest of the church were much more than decorative elements. So in that way, the depictions found at the Dura church are something more than just art. Maybe you could call it sacred art or just iconography. The pictures in the Dura Europus Baptistry and throughout the building were haptic, as they say in the art lingo. The people used them as an active part of their worship. During ceremonies and rituals, the participants saw these depictions and they made people feel a certain way or make a certain connection during the ceremonies. We see this haptic quality of art in many religious traditions, particularly in the use of icons that are still used in Eastern Christianity to this day. Art as a tool of worship was a key element of the early form of Christianity practiced in places like Dura Europus. I may be speaking for myself here, but as a person born and raised in the West with ideas of modern Western Christianity, it takes some effort to pull myself into the mindset and environment of a prospective Christian in the mid-250s AD. A Christian or prospect Christian in the 200s AD experienced something quite different than we can imagine today. For one thing, a Christian in the 3rd century AD was technically breaking the law by just being a Christian. How much the laws forbidding Christianity and how they were enforced in a far-off place like Dura Europus is nearly impossible to determine. But given that Dura Europus Christian building was in a repurposed house on the outskirts of town and not in a flashy building in the center of town, gives us some idea these early Christians weren't flaunting their religion. The time when the Dura Europus Christian building was in use was during both the Decian persecution and the so-called little piece of the church, both of which we've talked about in early episodes of this podcast. Again, it's hard to say how these trends in Christianity and the larger Roman world affected a military commercial outpost in the middle of the desert on the frontier with an onagon off-again adversary in the Persian empires. Another aspect of the Dura Europus church that is difficult to wrap your mind around is how the physical building was used and how the Christians performed their rituals and assorted elements of the version of Christianity they practiced. Scholars make certain assumptions about the congregation of this church and how, that, how it was tied into the bigger picture. They say that we should see the Dura Europus congregation in the light of Syrian or Middle Eastern Christianity. There is much to say for this theory, and that's what I'll be basing most of this episode on. But you can't discount that the Christians of Dura Europus may have been something completely different than what we expect, or at the very least, they could have had an entirely unique set of practices and theologies, being that they were located close to Syria, but definitely on the outskirts. Let's place ourselves back in that house church building. 
we talked about the layout in the first episode about Dura Europos House Church, so I won't go back over all of that. I highly suggest you refer back to that episode or pull up one of the diagrams of the house if that's convenient. I mean, don't slam the brakes on your car to see it because it's really just a room with the baptistry font on one side. But if you have a chance, there is a link in the show notes to a really cool uh, depiction of the house church made by Yale University. So I would take a look at that. Much of the most interesting scholarship Regarding the Dura House Church is the baptistry room, which we'll talk about. This was a smallish room in the corner of the house. This room was definitely not in the original house plan and was added in the renovation when the house was converted to a religious building from a domestic building. It is interesting in reading a lot of scholarly articles, oftentimes just one paper or book will become the standard by which everything else afterwards needs to be evaluated or measured by. A giant of the biblical archaeology field named Carl Kraling set the standard by which the Dura Synagogue and Christian Building Studies have been had to conform to for the last like almost 100 years. Carl Kraling worked on the excavations of Dura during the 1930s. A little background on Kraling, Carl Kraling that is, he had one of those great academic pedigrees. For our purposes, he taught and worked at Yale University and in particular had strong connections to the Yale Art Gallery. In the late 1960s, Kraling literally wrote the book on the Dura Europa's Christian House Church Building. I'm not too embarrassed to say that I had never heard of Carl Kraling before, but I read a lengthy and glowing obituary written by William J. Fulbright. If you've listened to Gary Stevens' History in the Bible podcast, you'll know a little bit about Fulbright. People like Fulbright and Kralings were just titans of the biblical archaeology game in the mid early to mid uh, even into the late 20th century and it really takes a lot of evidence to turn the field around from a lot of their conclusions even up to this day most of the iconography that was found at the site was found in the baptistry there are some representations that aren't that controversial There's a depiction of Christ walking on water. There's a boat and a picture of somebody walking on water. Actually, there are two people we can see in the water. This is also a depiction of a man with the bed on his back and is pretty clear that this is the story of the paralytic Jesus healed. There is also a depiction of David and Goliath. That's really cool and unexpected. We'll get into that one in a bit of detail. The two depictions that have recently been reevaluated feature women. One is a woman taking water from a well, and another is of several women in procession. The thing we need to talk about first might sound obvious, but has many more layers, namely, what was the baptistry used for? That might seem like a question of, like, who's buried in Grant's tomb? But the use and the purpose of the baptistry is an interesting question. We could also ask, how was the baptistry used? Of course, the baptistry was used for the Christian initiation ceremony, baptism. 
For me, baptism evokes images of babies in funny little funny white suits on Sunday mornings, a quick service, and then everyone gets what they're really looking forward to, the big fun party. An early Christian initiation wouldn't have looked anything like that. You should more properly put yourself into the mindset of a mystery or religion or mystery cult of the ancient Near East and Eastern Mediterranean. We talked about them in one of the very earliest days of this podcast. Ryan Stitt has talked about them in the History of Ancient Greece podcast as well. These mystery religions had very specific initiation rituals that were shrouded in, well, mystery. That is what a Christian baptism of the 3rd century would have much more resembled. As a rule, in the East, baptisms were only done on one night of the year, the night of the Holy Pascha, what we call Easter. Initiates, or more properly catechumens, went through a long process of education to get into that big night. The ceremony would have taken place on late Saturday night. Holy Saturday, which would have led into the Eastern celebration on very, very early Sunday morning. Like just after midnight Sunday morning, so very late into the evening. We don't know all of the exact forms that would have taken place because there was a multiplicity of practices in early Christianity, especially in the Middle East. We can be fairly sure that the initiate would, would be baptized, anointed with oil, and then he or she would have participated in the Eucharist. After all that, the catechumen or initiate would be a full member of the church. There would not be a phased-in initiation like, say, in the modern Roman Catholic Church. Even how the sacraments were delivered would have been in a different order. In modern Roman Catholic practice, chrismation or confirmation is the last step, and that doesn't occur for young people until they're in the teenage realm. To this day, it is the practice in the East for a baby to receive the baptism, chrismation, and Eucharist all at the same day in the same ceremony uh, space, where in the modern Catholic practice, a baby is baptized at around seven-ish years old, a young person is given their first communion, and then, like I said earlier, that when they're in their early teens, that's when they're finally given uh, chrismation, which is a sealing with oil of the Holy Spirit. That's a whole other theological question and uh, description, but you get the drift there. Now, this is how it would have been for adult converts or initiates in the Dura Europas, the baptism, chrismation, Eucharist scheme. One thing the imagery at the house church suggests, and also what we know about early Syrian Christianity, is that the anointing of oil may have been much more critical to the initiation ceremony than actual baptism. The anointing of oil is very likely what the people at Dura Europas considered the act that really made them Christians and was the ultimate act of the initiation ceremony.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I think the key point in, to keep in mind in everything we talk about the Dura Europa's House Church is that the people there had a very different point of view on certain points of practice and theology than what is commonly held today. In modern Protestantism, which dominates how Christianity is viewed in large parts of the West, the relationship with sacred art as a tool of worship is uncomfortable at best and completely rejected in many circumstances. Roman Catholicism doesn't have much problem with sacred imagery, but because of artistic differences that happened very early on in church history and developed throughout the ages, the Roman Catholic use of iconography is different than in the East. Another layer of difference between the modern Christianity of the West and the older Christianity of the Middle East is the use of texts. Personal, close reading, contemplation, and interpretation of sacred texts like the Old Testament, New Testament, letters, epistles, etc. would not have been common. Now, early Christian converts as a whole would have been much more likely to be literate than the average person of their time. It is also likely early Christians would have had decent access to these sacred texts. Lack of literacy skills and or access to reading material would not have been the issue. 
In the courtyard of the Dura Europa's church, many inscriptions of the Greek alphabet have been found. So you think about that. People were actually even being taught to read there, whether it was children or converts. They wanted them to be educated to some degree. Availability of text was something people must have been thinking about as well because sheets from harmonized gospels were found. Why harmonize the gospel and shorten it from its four books into one if you didn't want the text more available and more portable? No, there was a difference in the way people approached the sacred texts. They were taught the texts, then taught the interpretation the orthodox interpretation of the small o orthodox remember priests and bishops were teachers and they were focused on teaching this small o orthodoxy that was their role the catechumen's role was to learn that orthodoxy there was a place for personal prayer and reflection but the type of community in Syria and in the east in general was much more corporate in focus they're locus of prayer and church life was focused in the community much more than personal reflection. I'm really not trying to beat a dead horse with all this differences in theology and understanding and yada, yada, yada. It actually applies. To understand the art, the place and function of the baptistry, you have to understand, or at least try to understand, the culture of the people who existed there. That is where the differences in opinion come from between Carl Kraling's interpretation of the art in the baptistry and some of the more recent reevaluations done by people like Michael Peppard. The interpretations of Kraling make sense in certain ways, but Pepperd's trying to look at the art through a different lens and coming up with some different interpretations. I'll give you a good example, a more clear example to start out with. On one wall of the baptistry, there is a painting of David and Goliath. David and Goliath's story, just really short, David was famous king of Israel. Again, go back to Gary Stevens' History in the Bible podcast. David kills the monster, well, he's not a monster, he's a giant Goliath of the Philistines. So there's a lot of metaphors in there, but David's the little guy, little kid. He beats the professional soldier, so the weak overcoming the powerful, you know, all that. You don't have to be a fancy art historian poring over archetypes and comparing old photographs for this one. The painting literally says David and Goliath on it. The characters in the paintings are even labeled as such. Carl Kraling said the purpose of that motif in the baptistry was unknown. A David and Goliath motif didn't fit into what he knew and understood, so he wrote that David and Goliath scene off entirely. If you think about it, David and Goliath, in the traditional way it was thought of at the time of Kraling, especially in his religious circles, Kraling was correct. There's not even a much to compare the uh, David and Goliath motif to contemporarily to the 250s. The David and Goliath scheme was not used very often in baptistries, if at all. There is a couple of examples around, but it is unusual. There was really no way to tie that story into the baptism ritual, but maybe there is. 
One way the militarist David and Goliath could fit into the baptism is the defeat of evil idea, maybe, but that's kind of weak soup. More likely is that David is the anointed of God, just like Jesus. The anointing of oil is the key, or was the key. Baptism was the beginning of the process, but being anointing, anointed with oil is what really tied the catechumen with Christ and David. Also, Dura Europus was a frontier military town, making the iconography appeal to the military and to the soldierly life wasn't a bad marketing idea. That was the audience and the culture of this frontier town. David is depicted as a Roman and Goliath in traditional Persian garb. There is definitely comparanda for this in later art. David and Goliath are continually presented in art with David shown in the gear of the perceived good guy and Goliath in the wear of the bad guy. It's a classic representation throughout art history. Another piece of interesting art was a picture that was in the corner of a woman drawing water from a well. Carl Kraling made the obvious connection. This piece of art represented the woman at the well from the Gospel of John chapter 4. I'm going to long quote John chapter 4 to give you an idea of why Kraling would have thought of this art representing the Samaritan woman at the well as a slam dunk. Not f- no further questions needed. So here's the long quote. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, asked a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, 
nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming that you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know that we worship for salvation of the Jews, but the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, he. New King James Version and KJV, courtesy of Bible Gateway. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everyone, I'd like to say something about a new product I've tried called Calatrin. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calatrin is for healthy weight loss. I have taken Calatrin myself, and I can honestly confirm that I've lost weight, I sleep better, and, and I have found relief from a joint injury that I sustained in my arm. Calatrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age, and I am reaching of that age where things decrease. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply, and this week, take advantage of their President Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HOP23060505 and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HOP230605 and I really do recommend you give this product a try and I'll talk to you next time. Are you a man who thinks about the Roman Empire at least once a day? According to a recent internet meme, you definitely do. And why shouldn't you? Here's a clip from Tom Holland talking about Rome at the very height of its power. When tourists go to the Colosseum, they're not really going there. I suspect most of them, because they're admirers of Flavian architecture, I suspect that they're going there because it's the kind of the shiver that you get 
of going to a place where blood sports have happened. To listen to more of this discussion, check out the History Unplugged podcast on the podcast player of your choice. Now, Crailing thought the representation of a woman drawing water from a well was a motif in the baptistry was that slam dunk I spoke of because of this passage. It is clear the Samaritan woman is all about redemption through baptism. There is imagery of the bridegroom, all the classic baptism references, and here we have a depiction of that at the Dura Europa's church. Why are we even talking about this? Well, this is where Michael Peppard makes a case that even someone as dense as me at art and art or interpretation can see. Peppard lays out a case that the woman represented drawing water from the well is not the Samaritan woman of John chapter 4, but is possibly the earliest depiction of the Virgin Mary. Peppard makes a case based on Syrian comparanda. Comparanda is another art word I didn't know until doing this research. This comparanda is the use of similar pieces of art or art motifs from similar places, times, or contexts. Peppard shows that almost everything about the woman drawing water from the well, iconography from Dura Europas, points to the design being of the Virgin Mary and particularly the Virgin Mary at the Annunciation. The Annunciation, of course, is the moment when the Archangel Gabriel Gabriel tells or announces to the Virgin Mary that she will bear Jesus. Here are a few details that Peppard produces that are really quite compelling, even if you aren't a religious art expert. For one, the woman is looking over her shoulder. That's actually classic Virgin Mary during the Annunciation iconography during the classical period in Syria. A second piece that Kraling and others didn't pick up on was the faint lines going off the woman that lead upwards to a piece of the mural that's no longer extant. Again, those lines going upward from the Virgin Mary were classic elements in later Annunciation iconography. Another piece of the picture, so to speak, that pushes the case that this mural represents the Annunciation is the woman has a big star on her shoulder. If you Google an Eastern icon of the Virgin Mary, one of the first things that you will notice is that she has stars on her shoulders. That's a very old motif that's carried on all the way into the present. I think this particular mural from Dura Europa shows how complicated deciphering and interpreting ancient art can be. What appears to be a no-brainer interpretation can get set on its head with a slightly different perspective. In this example and many more, there are so many interpretations. One thing worth mentioning very briefly is that it appears that one artist may have done many of the art drawings and murals throughout the entire city of Dura, in the synagogue, synagogue, Mithraeum, the church, and more. It's not entirely impossible that the artist didn't know anything about the particular theological points of any of these religions, but was just an artisan for hire. Different motifs or aspects may have been added by the artist for purely artistic purposes that carry no theological significance. 
the artist could have been working off a contract that's said to include certain points, and the artist was certainly supervised, but that doesn't mean in this case that every brushstroke carries strong theological perspectives. It's not, I don't know, it's just something to think about. There's a lot to think about in this small town where Roman soldiers were Christians paying for iconography. Did they also go to the Mithraeum? Was there crossover with the synagogue? Um, was this Dura Europus community a spinoff of the synagogue? We just, we don't know. There's just so much we could speculate on and it's just a lot of fun. And there's just so, so much to talk about here. I feel myself getting drawn deeper and deeper into the story. I feel that this is a good place to stop, though. I want to recount so much more. There's a depiction of Jesus walking on water and the healing of the paralytic from the Gospels and more. I think this is a good place, maybe not to stop, but just to pause. I will likely visit church architecture and art much more in the future. I'm working on lining up some guests to discuss these aspects more as well. We just have so much more interesting history to talk about. But I don't necessarily want to get bogged down in this one point, at least not for right now. So I definitely reserve the right to come back and talk about Dura Europas more in the future. If church, art, music, and architecture is something you'd like to hear more about, definitely take a moment to get in contact with me. We are not quite done yet today, though. I just want to take a moment to discuss a recent iTunes review I received from Roxana in the USA. I really appreciate your reviews and comments. They make me think more and push me to explore the choices I make in telling the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church. And this comment is not an exception. They're all great. Here is the comment Roxana left. I am a Catholic convert from Protestantism. I really enjoy learning the history of the church from another non-religious perspective. I agree with other commentators' positive comments, so I'm going to get right to my criticism. I'm only a short way into the podcast, and I don't know if this has changed as the podcast has progressed, but why are Protestant Bibles, the NIV, that's the New International Version, or the KJV, the King James Version, used for reference, especially for times before Protestantism even existed. The Douay Reims, New American, St. Joseph, Didache, and especially a Catholic Study Bible would be good options for really exploring the Catholic perspective. I've been reading different books of the Bible recently in preparation for several collaborations I have planned with Gary Stevens of the History of the Bible podcast. I consistently use the new King James Version for my readings and listenings, as it were, of the New and Old Testament. I actually listen to the biblical books more often than I read them because it's a thing I can do during my commute or walk, etc., washing the dishes. Connecting to this episode on Dura Europas, listening to the Bible being read was a much more common thing than personal reading, so I'm going old school too. I personally like the sound of the revised King James Version. King James Version. 
It keeps the poetic nature of the King James Version, but brushes up the language a bit to have a more modern feel. The KJV and Shakespeare are really pillars of English literature. As for the iTunes commenter, as far as I know, the Catholic Church does not forbid the New King James Version. They, um, they might not actually be pushing it, or they might suggest other versions, but as far as I know, it's not forbidden. And it's also worth saying that, and I need to reiterate, this podcast is not a Bible study. So I don't feel compelled to use or not use any particular book based on religious lines. The scholarly consensus is that the King James Version is a fairly accurate word-for-word translation of the Bible and the new King James Version used a few different Greek texts to make the translation better. The new King James Version was actually done in, it was started in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and it was completed in the 90s. So it's, that's a very recent um, addition to the biblical game. There are two schools of thought generally in Bible translation. There's dynamic, which is trying to translate the gist of a passage. And then formal equivalence is the other type, the other um, school of thought on translating the Bible. And that's really trying to translate the word for word, then translating the bigger chunks to keep it in context and making sense. I've touched on the topic in regards to the Old Testament with Gary Stevens about all these translations, but I think there could be another episode in regards to the New Testament in the future. I feel overall that I'm on good standing using the NKJV version. It's what I've got. I like it. It isn't a huge distortion or a controversial translation, so I plan on sticking with it, but I will make more of a point of comparing translations. I really appreciate questions and comments like this because it forces me to think about my own decisions, biases, and how I approach the topics. So I thank Roxana for her thoughtful review, and I thank everyone for their iTunes reviews, emails, and everything else. Just thank you so much for coming along. A huge shout-out goes to our Rome-level patrons, Peter the Great, Mary Carmen, who's awesome, and Seth the Magnificent. I want to thank our wonderful Constantinople-level patrons on patreon.com forward slash papacy, Sandy, Andy, Paul, Dr. Jeff, Robert, Sean, Yoren, and Molly, as well as our Alexandria-level patrons, Francine and Richard. I just discovered a great podcast I'd like to share called Words for Granted. This is a show about linguistics, words, and history. Really, what else can you ask for? Ray Belli is currently working on a series on words in the Bible. It's really fascinating stuff, and we hope to do a collaboration soon to talk about some really interesting biblical and Christian elements and etymologies. You can find Ray's Words for Granted at www.wordsforgranted.com. And I've actually also just put a link in the show notes, too. I really sincerely appreciate you taking the time to listen. And I look forward to seeing you the next time on our next stop on our trip through the history of the Popes of Rome and Christian Church.
After Teddy Roosevelt's failed third-party presidential run, he thought that he would reassemble the Rough Riders for a final charge against the Germans in World War I by launching a cavalry attack against 50 caliber machine guns. Here's an interview with Bill Hazelgrove to look at this incredible story. Teddy Roosevelt was one of these people who seemed indestructible. And that's why I think a lot of Americans wanted him to go, because in a way, he was their Superman. To listen to this full interview, check out the History Unplugged podcast on the podcast player of your choice.